I follow some like reactionaries. Like I know there's this guy, Keith Woods, like another, he's like an Irish Nazi, um, like self self declared Nazi, um, who I guess was close with Spencer, um, was part of a publication with him. Uh, they've split. I guess he's become kind of a pariah even within white nationalist circles. Uh, Spencer has. Yeah, Spencer has. Yeah. How come? Uh, well, um, they, they consider yeah they consider him kind of a lib. <laughs> Too much of and, a centrist. Uh, 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 they consider him kind of a lib and like cringe. Um, just his aesthetics and like his. Uh, I mean, he quite famously and I mean. Uh, advocated voting for Biden uh, in the last election um, to, because he thought that Kamala Harris and uh, and Biden would be better at jailing BLM activists or something like that. I mean, it was like, I mean, it's neither here wow, nor there. Wow, Kamala like, does have forum on jailing people. So, I mean, oh, it's, yeah, she's, it's not an outrageous reach. <laughs> no, no. I mean, he's, you know, again, like, I, I always, I always like found it funny when people were like, oh, if you vote for Trump, like you're voting for Nazi, all the Nazis support you know, Trump, it's like, not true. Uh, <laughs> Biden is quite loudly supported by Richard Spencer. Like, <laughs> did every, it did everyone a favor. It got, got, gave everyone a get out clause, I guess, on, on whatever, wherever you were being like harangued to vote for. And like, well, you know, Richard Spencer's voting for Biden. So. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, yeah, I mean, and everybody was like, oh, but he's just trolling. It's just like, well, I don't know about that. I mean, his his fellow, you know, the 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 Nazis who support Trump, like, you know, take issue with him as a Nazi who supports Biden. So they at least they take it seriously. So I don't know. It's I can imagine him penning an article in, in some magazine called, you know, and why not Biden? <laughs> why not Biden? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back to BungaCast. It's Saturday, the 22nd of January when we're recording this. I'm Alex Hochuli, uh, joined as usual by Philip Cunliffe. Uh, George Hoare is away, um, but we'll struggle on uh, without him and without his puns uh, because we're joined today by Ross Wolf. Uh, Ross is a, a Marxist writer and architecture critic in New York. I think he'll be familiar to many of you, especially uh, online leftists. Um, I guess you're listening to a podcast, so by default, you'll be an online leftist. I don't know. Uh, he, had a, he had a popular blog called The Charnel House, uh, focused on the history of revolutionary architecture and politics, uh, and is also associated with the, uh, with the hashtag doom. Um, and make of that what you will. Um, I don't know if he was, was the, was the originator you, yeah, of that. Yeah. Did you actually originate the doom hashtag, Ross? I don't know. Um, I, I certainly used it quite a lot. Um, well, maybe the doom hashtag I mean, I think it, originated I think it, you. I think it maybe, if anything, it just captured a sort of cultural zeitgeist. So I, I don't claim to which have which continues, it. which I know <laughs> most definitely it's continues. never ending. Uh, it's true. Never yeah. ending. Anyway, this is, is we, like... we're, we're very belatedly having Ross on. Uh, it's very nice to have you on, Ross, um, to talk about uh, well a range of things. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, your own political history, a bit about architecture, and then we're going to delve into a really brilliant essay uh, that you've written on justice or really arguing against justice and uh, laying the argument out for why Marxists should be very skeptical um, or abandon any notion of an egalitarian ideology or ideology founded on justice. So we're going to get into that uh, in just a second. Um, 
But just we wanted, I guess, to um, give a bit of context before we get into the Marxism Contra Justice essay that you wrote. Um, and uh, I know you've written a short, you wrote, you wrote a short biographical essay in your blog some time ago covering your political development. And we're wondering maybe if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Um, what's your political background and how did you come to the political views you hold today? And when did you start thinking of yourself as a Marxist? Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for having me on the program. Um, I don't listen to many podcasts really except come town uh which my girlfriend listens to constantly um so i'm a bit I mean, we, we can call each other works. gay and say that you suck dick <laughs> someone if that makes you more comfortable yeah i mean maybe uh but uh in any case yeah antifada had me on a couple times to talk about things i'd written but um i like a lot of the guests you've had that Bungacast has invited on uh, you've had on Alex Gundler and Anton Yeager to talk, and I really admire the work of uh, Aaron Beninov, uh, with whom you also did an episode. Um, plus, I really enjoyed Philip's book, uh, Lenin Lives, which is uh, an alternate history of the Russian Revolution. Um, yeah, so it's great to be on the talk. Um, like you said, uh, some people know me from my blog, uh, which I don't really update as often as I used to. Uh, really, you know, these days I'm mostly working, uh, hanging out, watching sports and stuff. Uh, so I don't really, you know, post as frequently as in the past. Uh, so most of the stuff that, that means I... your life has improved since you stopped blogging. Oh yeah. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I know work, you know, it's a means to an end as it is for everyone, but, um, yeah, I mean, most of the stuff that I write now, like uh, it's for outside publications, some of which, you know, are better known, others are pretty obscure. Um, so over the last few years, like I've written, uh, I've had essays, articles, uh, reviews, interviews published in the Brooklyn Rail, Insurgent Notes, Good Quail, Situations, uh, Rethinking Marxism, Mediations, Data Side, which is the, the one uh, you guys contacted me about. And uh, of course, the Platypus Review. Um, some of the architecture stuff, uh, I guess we'll talk about a little bit about, um, has been featured in the Architects newspaper, uh, Metropolis Mag, Eflux, and the this, this Swiss journal, Archithese. Um Also, like briefly, I, I contributed to and helped edit this uh, uh, left communist uh, organ called Intransigence, um, published some criticisms of AOC and uh, just social democratic leftism. But in any case, um, but we'll, 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 include links, link. we'll include links to this and uh, listeners, if they're not familiar with Charnel House, they should still check it out, even if it's not being updated so regularly, because it's really a brilliant resource. I mean, I used to be a very regular yeah. visitor to it. And then I realized actually in advance recording, it's like, man, it's been it's been a while. It's been like maybe a year since I visited it. But um, I used to be such a regular visitor to it and reading about things which I barely understood but found really interesting so and very very uh, very aesthetically pleasing unlike many blogs and that was always um, appreciated I, I certainly appreciated about it so when did you start contributing to these um, online forums magazines and so on oh so all right so yeah you asked earlier uh, about my political and intellectual history and really kind of I mean it's been somewhat constant I think like I haven't actually changed my views too radically, um, you know, over the you know decade plus that I've been involved and interested in all this stuff. But it's moved through a few different phases. So uh, really, I was always interested in the history of the Russian Revolution, really from the time I was a teenager in the early aughts. Uh, 
mostly sim- uh, sympathizing with Trotsky against the sort of Stalinist degeneration of the revolution. But uh, what really politicized me was the Iraq war uh, as I came into contact with a bunch of sort of soft front trot orgs in the anti-war just, movement. Just if I could, so the point about Trotsky and Stalin, so you pick this up out of historical interest or there is a family background? Was it from what you were taught in school or did you pick it up online? How did it emerge? Um, yeah, kind of a family background. Um, my family is uh, Russian Jewish. They moved prior to the October Revolution, um, but my great-grandfather was a Bundist, um, right. which is like a Jewish socialist organization condemned by Trotsky and Lenin as a kind of um, a culturally chauvinistic or nationalist um, but to be contrasted, it's often contrasted with Zionism. Uh, he, I guess, would pamphlet uh, synagogues. He was very secular. Um, but from what I understand, like he became intensely sympathetic with uh, Stalin uh, when he moved to the United States, mostly because, and a defender of Stalin, mostly because he, he just liked the fact that the communists had killed the czars and, you know, you know he remembered, you know, persecution from that time um so yeah uh, i guess you know for whatever reason i just because of my family's history i became interested in in you know the russian revolution that sequence and um yeah just reading books about it i read sheila fitzpatrick i read richard pipes of all people uh, when i was like you know 14 or 15 years old um and just became interested in that and then a couple of years later, um, you know, the Iraq war started and, you know, I was intensely opposed to that. I thought it was complete bullshit uh, from the jump and, uh, you know, began getting involved in the sort of activist left milieu that sprouted up really like almost pathologically anti-Bush. Like, I mean, that became a huge yeah. problem as it sort of, uh, you know, became just especially, you know, even the, the Trotskyist organizations totally capitulated to Obama, like by 2007 as like, you know, the, the whole thing they were saying stuff like, oh, we can't go on record as opposed to the first black president or whatever. So uh, they ran a lot of ideological cover for uh, Obama and the Democratic Party as, and that's a, you know, something that has happened repeatedly um, yeah. in terms of the left, uh, it just fixates um on whatever right-wing boogeyman exists in the present and uses that as justification to back the lesser evil um, which they think of as the democrats invariably and so was it this so the capitulation as you say to obama that is what alienated you from the kind of the radical left fringe uh certainly the activist left um and i mean around that time i'm in in terms of my college studies, I, I started reading a lot of German idealist philosophy in the mid-aughts um, and critical theory, which um, really takes up the legacy of German idealism, Hegel and uh, Kant, um, and uh, filters that through a Marxist lens and applies that, that lens to the history of Marxism itself. Um, so really politically uh, combining sort of vaguely Trotsky's sympathies uh, with uh, more intellectual uh, curiosity in terms of uh, the Frankfurt School 
um, which sort of led me in grad school, in early grad school, to uh, the Platypus Affiliated Society, which I was a member of for a few years. Um, I'm still, you know, you know, I'm Platypus, interested. Platypus adjacent. I'm not. I wouldn't call myself Platypus adjacent. Um, I find some of uh, the antics uh, and rhetoric of some of their members uh, quite um, irritating online. Um, but they're more serious uh, published work. Uh, some of it that Catron does, some of it that their other members do is kind of interesting. And their publication, you know, it's a forum, right? Like it includes yeah. outside contributions. And some of that I find quite good. Um, John Garvey from Insurgent Notes uh, has published there. Uh, Alan Milkman, uh, the late Alan Milkman from Internationalist Perspective. So they, they publish a range of self. Uh, Jamie Merchant has been part of uh, Fora uh, panels that they've done. Um, and their own, the work by their own members is occasionally uh, you know, interesting to me as well. Uh, and their project, you know, while intriguing, um, you know, I their their whole uh, their whole uh, focus is on the death of the left and whatnot, and exploring the consequences of that. Um, I found uh, really, you know, toward the end of my uh, time in Platypus, that really they don't really have a monopoly on the insight into the sort of uh, uh, the death of the left, if you will, or just the, the problems that. Uh, the pathological forms that leftism take today. And I became more intrigued uh, by uh, left communist uh, politics and uh, theory around this time. So around like 2013, 2014. So and what, I was, began... what was the difference between left communism and the Trotskyist activism that you were leaving behind? So I was really prepped for um, the uh, left communist critique uh, by um, some of Adorno's writings in the 1960s, his uh, critique of actionism, which grew out of his confrontation with uh, the student left during that time in Germany. I found that uh, an Italian Marxist, Amadeo Bordiga, had written a critique of activism from more within the political tradition of Marxism, the organized political tradition of Marxism. Uh, Adorno never belonged to any parties um, to speak of. Um, but Beyond that, intellectually, I was sympathetic to the anti-nationalism of the sort of modern left communist synthesis, which combines uh, sort of Dutch-German currents with uh, the italian Bordigas current. Uh, I'm sympathetic more to Honorado Dahmen, who was a, a disciple of Bordiga, who uh, moved away from him in the 50s, really. Um, but in any case, uh, I've, I've maintained an interest in critical theory um, and uh, more recently, uh, the, the new reading of Marx that has emerged in German circles. Uh, I, I studied with Moish Bastone at Chicago. So, you know, I was very receptive to that line of thinking um, and the anti-nationalism of it and the, the criticisms of some of the, uh, the pathological forms of leftism that that Platypus sought to address, um, I find uh, left communism does as well, uh, perhaps in my opinion, better. Um, but in any case, that's that's where I, I mean, in terms of my like concrete positions on any number of issues, like I don't think they've really changed too much. Uh, I mean, really, except like my disillusionment with the uh, with the anti-war left 
was uh, palpable. But I was I was never a supporter of the Sanders thing. Like the DSA was always to me uh, just nothing that I was ever interested in. I've never voted. I I would certainly never vote for a Democrat. I think that that's just a complete abandonment of uh, Marxist principle to support any bourgeois party. Um, and yeah, I found a lot of the uh, a lot of the sort of resurgence of Marxism around Sanders and even at, even post 2008 to be kind of, I don't know, unserious, but you know, it is what it is. I wanted to just listening to you talk, it takes me back a bit because something that I still haven't quite um, got my head around is that, um, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it is that there really was kind of a remarkable efflorescence of um, Marxist theorizing in that period. And the fact that people, you know, that these, um, uh, you know, post-war, post-First World War debates on Dutch Council communism, um, anti-nationalism, like you say, the rediscovery of Bordiga, whom only really Lauren Goldner, um, you know, kind of had uh, done anything really to kind of pay attention to. And you had a few footnotes here and there in some of the more well-known texts. But then suddenly, you know, like my students, the students I was teaching who were um, uh, leftists of various kinds, you know, they knew about Bordiga, um, at least the more radically really? involved ones. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, you know, Bordiga memes were popping up. You know, yeah. I mean, this is just an example with Bordiga particularly, but it's only to say yeah. that there was a remarkable kind of efflorescence of, you know, all sorts of um, obscure aspects of, um, 20th century Marxist history and politics that seemed to explode, or at least, um, you know, there was a remarkable kind of um, growth and in discussion. And it, a lot of it was online. And like I say, then it kind of took all of the typical kind of online forms with um, uh, various kind of Facebook discussion groups. And obviously there was the aftermath discussion group of which I think, um, I think we're all members. You're a member too, Alex, right? The secret yeah. discussion group that was <laughs> outed that was outed in the interview with what's his face um, oh michael rechtenwald yeah michael rechtenwald <laughs> yeah so i suppose i mean i i you know that i was i don't know if that was specifically connected to the internet but there was this ability to kind of share obscure texts that would have been very difficult to get hold of uh, or whether there was some um, something more to it whether there was a sociology and a politics to it um Perhaps you've got some more insight, but I'd be curious to hear because I was very struck by it. And it still seems to me important in terms of shaping the trajectory of many um, people on the either the activist left or the intellectual left at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what led to the uh, sort of upsurge in interest uh, in these currents, uh, Bordiga or uh, Dutch uh, German council communism. Um, part of it probably is the easier access to these texts that just comes through the internet. Um, various, you know, very marginal groupings. Uh, some of, I'm probably most sympathetic to, uh, maybe think of myself as a fellow traveler to the international communist tendency or ICT, you know, who's, you know, very unesthetically pleasing, uh, blogs and, uh, websites, <laughs> uh, the degenerated workers' sites uh, of left communism became available and shareable uh, through the internet. Um, but I probably also spoke to, I mean, I mean, if we're being honest, like you know, there are various efforts to sort of like, you know, 
retread, uh, you know, revolutionary history and think of like, where did it all go wrong? The left communists have one version of this. Uh, the Trotskyists have another version. The Stalinists and Maoists have different versions. Uh, the Hojists have their own version. Um, Lauren Goldner says, you know, about how, you know, basically you could infer from when somebody dates the end of the Russian Revolution, their positions on a whole constellation of related political issues. Mm. You know, if you think it ended in 1953, if you think it ended in 1939, you know, 1923, 1927, whatever it is. Um, but I mean, I think that there must have been something somewhat compelling. I mean, it it brought together, you know, groups uh, from you know from Italy, uh, the the ICT's affiliates there. Uh, various ultra lefts in France. Um, there, are, for whatever reason, a bunch of people from former Yugoslavia who are interested in in um, uh, left communism. People from Britain. Uh, it brought together people from. A, I mean, probably not that numerous. I mean, if if we if we're talking in the aggregate, like just a few hundred. Um, but you know, it it certainly has uh, been a fertile ground for intellectual discussion for theorizing. Um, However much like tides may have shifted in terms of like latching onto, you know, these populist left movements, you know, Syriza, Podemos, uh, figures like Sanders or Corbyn, yeah. you know, you got people who were just like, oh, you know, forget all this like lofty theorizing, you know, this is what's attainable in the present and we've got to, got to get behind it. I've never, I've never been sympathetic to any of that, but you know. Did I can sort find, of understand. Did you find those people that you knew in those circles were there? I mean, certainly I, you know, my, the, I had a handful of left communist or left communist kind of adjacent students and they did all seem to be um, dragged along in the wake of Corbyn. Yeah. I mean, it was surprising to me to see some of the people just really, I mean, in my, in my view, perhaps dogmatic view, um, they were all abandoning their principles in order to just get behind what seems, you know, like, you know, it, it was feasible or, you know, goals that could be reached. Um, you know, my line was always that, oh, you know, someone like Sanders, he belongs to a bourgeois party, the Democratic Party, the, the graveyard of all social movements as it was known in the past. You know, why the hell would a communist ever support, you know, a reformist like this? Um, or Corbyn, I guess, uh, who had somewhat more radical credentials, I guess, in Britain. Um, I guess, I mean, I, I can understand it. People want to, you know, get behind something that they feel like has a shot of working out. Um, but even like, to me, like it was always like, okay, let's assume that Corbyn somehow, you know, wins a general election or let's say that, you know, Sanders somehow miraculously wins the democratic primaries, like, and they get elected into office Yeah. somehow. What then? Like, I mean, do you really think that they would not immediately betray the even the modest, you know, promises of reform that they've made um, yeah. when holding the reins of power? Even like a, the faintest whiff of like inflation or, um, you know, or economic crisis would lead them to to basically legislate austerity in the same way that Mitterrand did in the eighties, like you know, after riding a wave of popular socialist and communist support to the presidency of France, like, you know, it's, I don't view political figures as really determining these things, like, especially when they uh, reach office through electoral avenues, like, 
and yeah, I, I think that's the big difference between Corbyn, Sanders and Mitterrand is that Mitterrand at least waited until he was in power to betray the hopes of the left, <laughs> whereas Sanders and Corbyn succeeded in betraying those hopes before they even got close. So uh, Yeah, they're still just dutifully remaining within these bourgeois parties and saying, oh, you know, vote Hillary or vote, yeah, Biden or whatever. And uh, Corbyn, I guess he's, you know, uh, is uh, is he actually going to go through with this new party thing? Like I've heard it talked about. Yeah, I've not I've not been paying very close attention to it. So for our listeners who haven't been following it, Corbyn has had the whip removed from him from a mile now, which is to say he's uh, sitting in the Houses of Parliament as an independent rather than as a member of the Labour Party. He was expelled by the current Labour leader Keir Starmer um, over. Uh, I mean, it's connected to all the allegations of anti-Semitism and so on. And so there's now rumours that he might set up um, not only citizen independent, but might set up his own party. I find it hard to believe, um, you know, I mean, I think the because I mean, who knows what might come of it. But um, certainly on the left, I mean, there's George Galloway, the old Scottish um, kind of Stalinoid, Stalinoid Labour Party member, ex-Labour Party member who was always spinning off kind of new workers parties. And I find it hard to believe Corbyn would because for all of his rebelliousness on the back benches, he was a diehard committed member of the Labour Party. The idea that he would break with them um i don't find credible um and especially given that um you know many more figures who were in much stronger political positions and had much more to gain from breaking with the labor party didn't break with the labor party and I'm, i mean i'm talking of people i know kind of um, more directly here um so i don't think corbyn would but you know um who knows i mean maybe his maybe his twilight years have um a final a final act and this might actually be a decent segue into the essay because i've from what I've read, like the party that he would uh, be founding is called the the Peace and Justice Party. Perfect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's uh, the most bullshit name you could possibly imagine. It's perfect. And it's absolutely even better because it's denuded of any kind of reference to the workers, unlike George Galloway. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Just before we get on to that, then, I just wanted to um, uh, just to get you to expand a bit more on um, the political content of the anti-nationalist currents that you mentioned and what the appeal is or what you think their um, their strength is in terms of left politics, Marxist politics? Well, um, historically, the question of, na- I mean, Marxism has always um, thought of itself as an internationalist project. And uh, even the forms of national liberation that various, uh, you know, quite famous and revolutionary leaders of Marxism have uh, have proposed to support um, really were in the context of a sort of generalized world revolution. I'm, I'm thinking of like Lenin and uh, whatnot, but even he faced, uh, faced criticism from within his own ranks. It was not a settled matter uh, from Trotsky early on, from Bukharin and Luxembourg in Germany. Um, and then later, uh, the various uh, Dutch-German uh, currents uh, who thought that, especially outside of the context of a sort of larger world revolution, um, in that would uh, mean, you know, revolution in the uh, advanced capitalist core, um, the most the most advanced industrially uh, countries uh, around the world, that various projects of national liberation really. Uh, while perhaps you know, you know, throwing off the shackles of colonial oppression, which you know is never a bad thing, 
uh, really were not um, going to be a vehicle to any wider socialist internationalist revolution and really would end up only reproducing the, the antagonism between the national bourgeoisie and the international proletariat um, in each of these countries. Um, I've found myself, in, I mean, I imagine this is probably where I might um, disagree with you guys uh, somewhat because I, I'm skeptical. I'm, I'm, skeptical, I'm completely skeptical of the EU, but I'm also skeptical of Brexit. I don't see, I don't see national sovereignty as really uh, a lever that can be used against sort of world, the world markets or the pressures of the world markets to sort of uh, shelter national economies or benefit the working class in any sort of long-term me- way. Um, I think for me, really, the promise of internationalist Marxism is that the dictatorship of the proletariat um, cannot really be conceived in terms of any present day boundaries. Like it would inevitably, I mean, its core would be wherever, you know, it takes place in the most advanced industrial uh, sectors of the economy worldwide, whether that would be Berlin or London or Paris or Washington, DC, wherever it would be. Um, it really would not map onto any of the existing political entities. And um, it would of course face, you know, un- unless, and I mean, I'm like, really you got into this, this was the fear of the, uh, the revolutionaries in the first world war was that um, if the revolution remains isolated or is contained to a single country, especially relatively backwards one, it would in- inevitably be encircled, which is what was historically borne out with the USSR. Um, I think really the only threat to world capitalism um, in terms of uh, threatening to move on to a higher uh, stage of social organization came with the the first world war. That was really the big opportunity. Um, I don't think that the, it's impossible, even if it might seem unlikely that um, conditions might be reproduced where um, the overcoming, the sort of progressive overcoming of capitalism on a world scale is possible, but I find these sort of nationalist uh, deviations uh, or backing of various uh, perhaps oppressed nationalities as really a viable route um, towards achieving uh, communism on a a sort of world scale. So So that's that's really for me, the promise of uh, left communism because it is so, intransigently uh, internationalist and opposed to all nationalist projects. But didn't, isn't it in itself, um, I mean, I suppose without getting into the weeds of Brexit, um, but I suppose isn't, doesn't it speak also, this is, I suppose, what always struck me about the, um, which is why, I mean, I'm partly why I'm intrigued to hear an American talk about it, because it seemed to me, at least in the con- European context, it was a way for a certain group, and I don't mean in, you know, in the aftermath of the First World War, I mean now, the people now who are drawn to it, to kind of distance themselves from their own national politics. Um, that it was an express an expression in a way of their own alienation from politics as such, and they offered kind of a refuge, an online refuge from national politics, um, particularly in the context of the European Union, and particularly in the context of um, you know all the kind of national problems that came in the wake of the sovereign debt crisis and so on. Um, but I, I think that's a different situation in the states. 
Um, so I suppose I'm curious as to, given the fact that there is, you know, there isn't kind of um, that uh, legacy and history of int of the way in which international continental rivalries stymie all sorts of um, international solidarity or all sorts of political progress in the national context. Um, is there anything else about it from the American context that drew you? Because it seems to me something which is very European in many ways, um, and that it speaks to its origins in a particularly kind of conflictual era of geopolitical rivalry that in many ways is gone. You know, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't exist in the same way, at least well, in Europe. I would agree that in Europe, I mean, a lot of the people who online came to um, cluster around and find uh, sort of intellectual an intellectual home or a theoretical home in left communism they often came from places like germany italy um, that have had troubling nationalist pasts I, former yugoslavia which obviously in the 90s had you know a total bloodbath in terms of ethno-nationalist rivalries uh, in the united states like i think i mean some of the people who have found left communism appealing um just have been repeatedly uh and they've repeatedly come into contact with various Maoist organizations that, for whom really internationalist politics means backing whatever various anti-imperialist powers seem to be on the stage and like rooting for, I don't know, could be Maduro, Chavez, uh, Castro, even modern day China as sort of like challenging US hegemony and backing, you know, whatever regime has been put into place there yeah. simply because of its its anti-american um yeah credentials or posturing um and so for them really um their pseudo internationalism just means uh rooting for uh the national bourgeoisie even a, a country opposed to their own yeah and for me like that that i've always found that just just to be a total dead end um Especially because, I mean, I guess for Maoists, like especially third worldists, they believe that a revolution in the imperial core is impossible uh, or just like so unlikely as to, you know, just never occur. Um, like for me, like, you know, perhaps my old Trotsky sympathies, and I think this is shared by left communism, believing that uh, it has to, world revolution has to occur as a sort of coordinated effort in the most advanced industrial countries you can't uh, i mean rooting for the uh the national bourgeoisies or bourgeois governments of uh governments that happen to be geopolitically opposed to the interests of the united states really doesn't promise anything for like a future socialist order or no, indeed. You know, communism so for me that was you know really part of it yeah And that makes sense. And I suppose it spurs a second thought, which is that one thing that struck me about Platypus, and I don't know if this was your experience as well, but and this is obviously from the outside because I'm not a member of Platypus, um, but it seemed to me to also be a way in which um, many kind of young leftists who might have been repulsed by the anti-Americanism of the, of the American left um, for a way for them to reconcile themselves to um, the America to America itself, in a way, in particular, I mean, through the American revolutionary tradition and the legacy of the American revolution, which um, I know all the plat all the plats kind of um, 
venerate and um, even I'd say idolize. I mean, you know, to some degree with with good with justice, um, there will I think also it's um, excessive in some way that there might be an effect of kind of online online life and online debates. But I wondered if that was also part of your kind of um, of the appeal of platypus to you and and the appeal of platypus on the left itself that it allows leftists to be patriotic in a sense in America in a way that they wouldn't be able to if they were affiliated with other parts of the American left? Well, I mean, personally, I never really had an interest in American patriotism. I find flag waving of any sort, except for perhaps the red flag to be just, you know, something that's opposed to Marxist internationalism. But that being said, I found a lot of the sort of uh, fetishized anti-Americanism of the American left and even the international left um, to be something that all, was equally um, devoid of promise. Um, and I think something, and this was in part the influence of Moish Pistone, who had influence over a lot of various German Marxists, but also Platypus. Um, you know, they, they, but it's something also that's there in classical revolutionary Marxism. Like if you read uh, Marx's own appraisal of the American Revolution, uh, yeah. even in like the preface to Capital, he referred to the 1776 independence war as the toxin for you know, the bourgeoisies of Europe to sort of rise up and cast off the ancien regime. Um, and then uh, the American, uh, then the American civil war as the toxin for the working class of Europe to yeah. throw off capitalism. And then even Lenin, like writing letters to the, uh, the working class of the United States uh, saying like, look back at your own revolution, your country's revolutionary tradition. You know, there've been, you know, anti-feudal, um, you know, elements to your country's history and, you know, quite progressive um, episodes from your country's history that you can proudly draw upon. I don't, I don't think that that involves like being pro-America or anything like that. I, I don't think that being pro any capitalist countries in any way, I mean, at least in the era of international uh, working class revolution is in any sense uh, promising or opens a vista onto like a world communism. Uh, but that is perhaps some of the appeal that it had. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, again, like, you know, talking about, that's something that even like Jacobin and stuff, like they're, they're very into Lincoln and stuff like Marx's, uh, you know, support of Lincoln in the Civil mm. War, which of course is, you know, something I think any Marxist, you know, should understand, you know. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, some of these questions about, you know, where you position yourself in concrete struggles and concrete politics today might be something we want to return to in, in a bit. But after, uh, only after, we've uh, discussed your essay, which is really brilliant. I encourage listeners to, to go and read it in full. Uh, it's Marxism Contra Justice in uh, Dataside magazine. Before we actually get into the content, uh, Ross, why don't you tell us what Dataside magazine is? Because I wasn't familiar with it. Yeah, so I, I was really uh, pleased that you guys contacted me about this essay because, as I, as I mentioned, like it really didn't receive too much fanfare when it came out, and part of it is probably has to do with uh, the journal where it appeared. They decide it's a mostly German English uh, publication that focuses on, of all things, uh, Marx's value theory and uh, underground electronic music. Um, <laughs> uh, Quite a combination. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite obscure, um, but it's aesthetically quite uh, well done. I guess the, the German guy who runs it has a record label. Um, he, you know, a lot of, you know, cutting edge, like, you know, techno acts of, you know, he's recorded with them. But, you know, it's it's an unusual combination. And the, the site was post-blocked from Facebook, probably because of its title data side. They, they probably thought it was some sort of like hacker site gathering users information but for whatever reason you couldn't post links to it on facebook for like over a year so sharing it um people a few people shared it on twitter i guess uh lauren goldner contacted me to say that he'd read it um uh matt bolton uh and frederick harry pitts who i guess are british marxists uh, value form thinkers also read it and uh appreciated it i guess but in general like really people have not um uh, you know discussed it much so i'm really glad to be able to talk about it um i think it's you know as i go into in the article like you know it's a, a the identification of marxism marxism with some sort of doctrine of justice or some sort of uh, egalitarian ideology is quite old it goes back to the 19th century even uh but it's something that's recurred especially uh with this focus on so-called social justice today. So I'm glad to yeah. talk about it. So, so yeah, so I mean, as a way of maybe going through the main arguments in the essay, um, and it also presents a kind of long kind of, uh, you know, sort of intellectual history of approaches to justice, uh, you know, even before Marx, which is worth reading on in its own right. But it, as concerns the main Marxian, uh, or specifically Marx's and Marx and Engels contention against justice and against uh, sort of an egalitarian conception of socialism. Um, as we're going through that, what were the kinds of issues uh, that you thought suffered from being formulated as problems of justice today? Like, well, who were you writing this against, I guess, to put it that way? Well, I mean, it was kind of interesting because, like, I found in surveying, you know, uh, various uh, left supposed, various supposed Marxists on the left, as well as anti-Marxists on the right, uh, they both tended to share this uh, view of Marxism as a doctrine of justice, as a doctrine of social justice uh, specifically. And this ranged on the left from uh, various Trotskyist organs. You could tell, I mean, the, the essay was published in January, 2020, so a couple months before the pandemic. Um, but it was written in 2017, 2018. It took just a while to get published. And so I was reading like the now defunct ISO's journal, uh, you know, uh, one of their editors, uh, as well as uh, Alain Badu, a French Maoist, both seemed to think of Marxism as somehow, um, uh, you know, some form of uh, egalitarian uh, view of the world. Um, founded on a, a principle of social justice. At the same time, I was reading like various like far right, uh, even white nationalist journals that were extremely anti-communist, extremely uh, anti-Marxist, certainly. I was reading uh, Richard Spencer's Radex journal, rootedness is a big concept for uh, white nationalists, but they, they both thought of uh, the roots of modern social justice ideology as, uh, you know, the intellectual forefathers of this to be Marxists and Marxism as a, as a worldview. Um, interestingly, I found and, that the- And I uh, guess this is, this is associated, I suppose, with the general right-wing understanding of, you know, cultural Marxism and seeing contemporary identity politics, social justice, wokeness, and so on as having, in some sense, Marxist roots. 
Um, I, that's a similar sort of misapprehension on their part, right? Yeah. So that that's the interesting thing. It's like both the sort of proponents and opponents of Marxism, the self-declared proponents of Marxism um, and their opponents uh, seem to share this conception of Marxism as uh, as a sort of idea of, of social justice, as a way to bring about justice in the world. Um, and I, I found that whether or not their appraisals or, or evaluations were uh, positive or negative, they both shared this fundamental view. But this ran contrary to um, Marx and Engels' own stated positions, and as well as the positions of many of, in my opinion, uh, their best adherents. So figures like Rosa Luxemburg, figures like Paul Lafargue and uh, uh, the French party, as well as some of the debates that later recurred in the 1970s between analytic Marxists and some of their continental um, critics, uh, Daniel Ben-Said, uh, Sean Sayers. Um, well, we can go into that a bit, a bit further, but I just found it interesting, this sort of misconception. They totally misconstrued the theoretical and practical premises of Marxism um, by, by thinking of it as this sort of like idea of justice. So can you maybe just briefly spell out what that is? I mean, what the kind of how the materialist understanding um, is distinguished from one rooted in a notion of justice? Or in, or in in or inequality, um, just so that we can then you know get that under our belts, uh, and then we can move on to discuss some of the kind of finer grain detail. Sure. So, I mean, in terms of the sort of long history of the the concept uh, of justice, like it's, I mean, really from the times of ancient philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy, justice has been sort of the centerpiece. It was always the most important concept for. For Plato, uh, it was high up there for Aristotle. And there was always this idea of uh, it being the doctrine of suum cuic, the, uh, the idea you give to each their due. Um, in the past, like it, with Aristotle, certainly, uh, you know, with different forms of government, dem democracies were more egalitarian, oligarchies more hierarchical. The idea was that you grant it you know, you grant what is due to them. Like if they're great, they deserve a lot. If they're not so great, they don't deserve that much. Um, so it, it could have any number of like more uh, hierarchical or egalitarian iterations. Um, as you moved to the more modern conceptions of justice, you know, you know, because as a materialist, I view philosophers sort of self-understandings as mirroring social relations, um, the concepts of justice became, they, they tended to mirror uh, property relations and uh, this idea of exchangeability, interchangeability, equivalence, um, which is where um, the idea of equality before the law, you know, for Marxists really derives. So because of uh, the emergence of modern social relations of production, capitalism, where uh, one person's labor time is equivalent to another's uh, based on the social average. Uh, the idea of social equality before the law became this sort of uh, ideological reflection of this sort of under, underlying material reality. And so conceptions of justice, so the sort of blind justice, like weighing the scales, uh, you know, uh, in a jury of peers or whatnot, Really, uh, and all the modern juridical relations that uh, developed um, in bourgeois society, really, you know, reflect 
this underlying social reality of uh, material relations, uh, the exchange of commodities, and whatnot. And the conception of justice, um, as you know, teach their due, and everybody, you know, you know, should be given equally. Um, really, it's the it's a product of society. It's an ideological artifact of bourgeois society, and it can't be the basis then for the critique of that society. It's fundamentally Marxist point, because uh, conceptions of justice vary historically and are the outcome of these relations, they can't then serve as a critique or the grounds for a critique of these relations. So, so for Marx, the claim that, for example, you know, I don't earn enough and that someone's making money off my back and that I should earn more, that that would be more fair, or that some people don't have the, the same means as other people do, uh, that claim about justice is something which, uh, if not being wrong, it's something that's inimical to his vision. Is that, would that be a, a way you'd agree? Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I mean, and he's quite explicit about this and which is why, I mean, it's interesting because many um, supposed, uh, supposed adherents to Marxism um, think of themselves as, uh, think or think of Marx as having at least an implicit sense in which he thought that capitalist society was unjust, even though he explicitly disavowed this on numerous occasions. Um, his, his whole idea was that it's not a question of fairness. It's not a question of um, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. Uh, he really militated quite strongly against that slogan, the Chartist slogan. Um, for him, really, the, the conception of justice that obtains in any given society is uh, adequate to the underlying social relations. And it's shared by significantly both workers and capitalists. Uh, I mean, this really goes along with, uh, what is it in the German ideology where he says that the ruling ideas of any age are those of the ruling class. So the concept, the bourgeois conception of justice, the idea that um, uh, people deserve what they get, um, you know, really, you know, is a reflection of bourgeois social relations. Um, and that really, even though one might think of exploitation as a sort of inherently judgmental category, saying or saying that uh, it's an unjust, unequal relation, um, he, he's emphatic in capital, I mean, really from the 1840s through the 1870s, that, um, that the worker is not cheated, really. Um, that the idea is that they they agree they confront each other uh, at least formally as equals uh, on the on the market when when the capitalist is is procuring uh, the labor time uh, the labor power of the worker um, that the worker is not thereby cheated uh, even though they work over and above the the value of their labor um, you know they they confront each yeah. other they reach an agreement as equals and this is this is you know, the conception of justice that they themselves share. Yeah, that it's fair according to those rules of the game. But of course, some, you know, uh, socialists, in fact, many throughout history have sought to say, well, no, there's some different standard of justice. There's a different basis for it that we should argue for that, you know, justice should be based on some other notion. Um, and we can go into what those might be. I, I think, though, what you find in the wild, I mean, even today, you know, is that there's arguments for fairness, but I think most radical leftists would dismiss those as well. You know, they would be 
supposedly in line with your argument and also saying, you know, this fairness thing is, is nonsense. There's no real grounding to this idea of fairness. Um, but what they would then advocate in its place is, is, a, is a much more um, radical equality, I suppose, right? And your argument um, and your kind of defense of Marx here is based on an idea that it's not just that, you know, notions of fairness uh, should be abandoned, but notions even of equality, that some sort of egalitarian vision or egalitarian ethos should, uh, should also be abandoned in, uh, in the name of uh, the building of a new free society. So um, maybe you could explain that. What is the, what, what is the problem with equality? Um, because I think most people would hear this and say, well, okay, but surely capitalism doesn't proffer equality. It, it, it proffers formal equality, but not, not any substantive equality. So how can, so now how are you, how is Marx against the substantive equality? Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. Like often you hear in sort of HR style speak, people talk about, well, it's more about equity than it is about equality, whatever that means. Right. uh, So equity being a stand-in for sort of material equality. But I mean, really, like Marx is quite consistent on this throughout his entire career, throughout his entire body of writings, uh, from his polemics against Proudhon in the 1840s and and, uh, Heinzen in the 1840s, up through the 1870s, uh, his critique of the Goethe program, the uh, writings against Hochberg and, uh, you know, Engels' polemic against During, um, that really, the idea of egalitarianism, uh, the sort of equal, equal, you know, giving out to those equally, you know, this idea that really they associate with Proudhon and his idea of justice eternal or eternal justice, um, like the idea that uh, of giving rights to, to people, and really, again, for him, gerechtigkeit, the uh, German word for justice, is rooted in this idea of recht or right. Uh, he talks in the Gota, the critique of the Gotha program, about how equal rights are always um, a right to inequality, and this idea that. Um, it's not an idea of giving equally to, to, to different people because people's needs are unequal. Really for Marx, the idea is that uh, it's for the universal provision of need, the universality of need, uh, rather than um, people's equal right to the proceeds of social labor. Um, it's not about redistribution because for most of the socialists of the 19th century, essentially that's what it was. It wasn't about changing the material relations of production. It was more about just redistributing the proceeds of that uh, relation of production more equally, giving equally to everybody. But a blind person has different needs than a person with uh, functional vision. Um, So for him, uh, the idea of equality, the sort of abstract equality that, that was proclaimed by various bourgeois philosophers, while very revolutionary in its sense for its time as a sort of way to cast off uh, the sort of great chain of being, the sort of hierarchy of the cosmos uh, that feudal society had upheld, uh, while that sort of natural rights uh, view of all, all human beings are created equal was quite progressive for its time, the kind of society that would be created historically through proletarian revolution would be not one that's based on the abstract equality of, of uh, individuals, but rather uh, through the fact that they all need, that they all have needs that must be met uh, through social production. 
So I suppose two thoughts occurred to me listening. Um, I had a different question in mind, but another thought has, or another question has emerged listening. When Marx formulated the, his, or when he, at least, like you say, the polemics and the various kind of um, arguments he was involved in over that period, like you say, most of them were directed against um, ideas associated of labor money um, and redistribution. And the idea that there was some kind of raw deal that workers were getting, which is what explained um, their impoverishment and general um, exploitation. And that's slightly different from the way in which, you know, so most of the debates about justice on the left today, what strikes me, apart from um, debates around reparations, the form that debates on the left take today around justice are often cultural or symbolic. So, you yeah. know, they very rarely even, well, I mean, I suppose there's, you know, gender, there's the kind of um, gender pay gap and um, racial pay gap and reparations. But aside from that, you know, the overwhelming kind of, if we talk about social justice struggles, usually it's with reference to historical wrongs, to, um, say, uh, education, to cultural symbols, obviously, you know, whether statues should be up there, what curriculums should teach, what um, these kinds of things. And so today, those debates about justice really even seem to, you know, they don't even seem to cut as deeply into basic questions of distrib material questions of distribution and production, even to the superficial extent that those Proudhonian kind of claims of the 19th century yeah. did. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, um, with that judgment. Yeah, I mean, I mean, some of the historical grievances that are mentioned in left circles today really, I mean, while some of them might say like, well, we we do want you know, material reparations in some sense. L largely, it, it does remain on the sort of, in my opinion, superficial symbolic level um, of just wanting recognition or acknowledgement in some sense, rather than, I mean, but even, even like granting, you know, if one were to talk about, and this is a much more concrete way of perhaps spelling out what I was getting at earlier, um, the idea of like eliminating the racial pay gap or the gender pay gap, um, let's assume that that takes place for him. And so everyone is, you know, fairly uh, paid. Yeah. Um, that would just be the right to be exploited equally by capital for Marx. Yes. If you're not doing away with the wage system, um, you're just, but removing the various uh, accidental, one, art, one might argue, accidental features of inequality that uh, persist within the wage relation, you know, which... Yeah are filtered through one's race or one's gender or whatnot, one's sexual orientation, however one, if, if that affects their, the, the pay that they receive. Um, the idea for Marx is not to just make it more equitable uh, in terms of like everybody gets paid equally. Uh, the idea is to move beyond that, the wage relationship itself. Yeah. And which I is suppose... his, his very concrete um, uh, critique of the uh, Chartist slogan a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. He said, we've got to move away from this conservative motto to the revolutionary motto of abolition of the wage system. Yeah. And so it strikes me that the these demands for, say, abolishing various pay gaps, I mean, they're, me, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, to a great, in many ways, they're, um, they're formulated wrongly in any case. And this is, you know, they've received criticism on the gender pay gap and so on. But notwithstanding that, 
um, its effect would be to reinforce, like you say, effectively a liberal conception of society and in fact to make society, capitalist society, function um, more authoritatively and legitimately on the basis of equity. I mean, that would be its political effect were it achieved. Mm. I suppose just the other element, though, that is um, the other element of it that I think is also important is in the 19th century, of course, it was a demand that was made by organized labor movements, by genuine kind of working class movements. Whereas today, obviously, the form it's formulated, you know, these are essentially kind of PMC demands. They're not formulated through organized labor, or if they are, it's kind of white collar unions. But the expectation or the orientation of the claim, it's not channeled through organized labor, but it's also oriented towards essentially, you know, the human, human resources, bureaucracy, um, and also, you know, to essentially the bosses, the oligarchs and so on, that they need to reorganize their, um, I suppose, anyway, this is, this, far, I, what I'm getting at, I guess, is does this make any difference to your argument? So you've, you know, it's a very kind of erudite argument and you weave through um, in great detail um, and with tremendous insight through this, through the late kind of uh, late 19th century classical period of Marxism. But the context in which justice, kind of justice claims are made today, material and post-material justice claims, is different from the critique that Marx was Marx and Engels were making of those kinds of claims in the late 19th century. So does that make any kind of difference to the kind of argument that you want to make? Or do you think it affects, does it alter the kind of claims you might want to make? I think the stakes were greater when, when Marx and Engels were formulating their critiques, as well as, you know, figures like Luxembourg, uh, Lafargue, and even, you know, one could say even by the 70s, there, there was still traces of a more organized labor movement, um, you know, perhaps uh, having reconciled itself to uh, the Fordist post-war consensus, but still nevertheless, I, I think that the stakes were higher than uh, the past couple decades. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, again, I mean, to me, that's why I, mean, I don't consider myself as breaking new ground here. Yeah. Really, I think, uh, I'm revisiting these past debates um, because they were posed at a higher pitch of class conflict and uh, with, you know, at a, at a moment in which, uh, you know, really history was still happening uh, in a meaningful sense. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm really just excavating uh, the, the arguments of these, these thinkers. I think that really the point of uh, raising this again today uh, in when you know demands for justice are being made by various uh, civil society organizations, NGOs, and whatnot, um, various uh, liberals uh, through different media outlets, is again to remind them that even the sort of language that they ape from the past or like that they borrow from past labor movements is is language that I mean again from a moment you know when when things really mattered quite a bit more. Um, was itself inadequate even at the time. And it's all the more inadequate now uh, when yeah. mostly symbolic demands for justice are being made. I mean, I think that perhaps um, it's salience for today um, in terms of just, you know, whether or not one thinks of Marxism as a, as a doctrine of social justice is really, you know, 
justice for Marx, again, was kind of a, an abstract moral category that, again, he saw as more a product of society than the basis for its critique, um, which he, he saw as more obeying sort of, uh, you know, necessary historical laws. Um, it's, you know, if one were to really talk about the ways in which left leftist agitation takes place, li even left liberal agitation takes place online or uh, at protests or whatnot, it almost invariably takes the form of uh, this kind of moral exhortation, which uh, says like, be outraged about this, like, you know, you know, be upset at the fact that this injustice, this crying injustice is taking place. Yeah. Um, yeah. So on, and, actually on that, so on that specifically, you conclude very forcefully about this. So you say, you conclude by arguing values like justice and morality, these are your words, strictly relative, shifting sands, conditioned by material circumstances, not stable grounds for Marxist politics. Now, I, I agree. I mean, I agree with the arguments you've made, um, as I hope is plain. Um, and I agree with the thrust of your critique. But I do want to push you nonetheless, because I think I would maybe formulate my response slightly differently. And I want to push you in any case um, for the, you know, just as devil's advocate. So it strikes me it's an odd note to end on. Because A, it, you know, when you say that there's stable grounds, that it doesn't offer stable grounds for Marxist politics, it's not clear to me that there are any stable grounds for Marxist politics at the moment in any case. Mm -hmm. Um, at least, you know, without any organized labor movement to speak of and a deracinated and kind of defeated working class in the Western world. So that's one point. The second point, though, is it really possible to conceive of any popular working class movement that doesn't at least begin with an appeal to people's sense of indignation or dissatisfaction um, or frustration or that sense of the burning passion for redress? Um, in any kind of, you know, ordinary workplace struggle, say the boss kind of stealing time, expectations placed on people in the workplace, wage theft, um, those kinds of sentiments are usually bundled together under the name of justice, you know, or will be formulated in terms of justice and will certainly kind of motivate people in a very basic and visceral way. So is it really possible to dispatch with the idea as decisively as you wish to? in the piece? That's a great question. Um, for me to answer the first part in terms of the, the sort of solid or stable ground on which uh, the Marxist critique um, places itself, I think historically, and this is true even if uh, the labor movement internationally and in the most advanced capitalist countries is at a low ebb and at an historically low ebb in terms of militancy, in terms of its opposition to capitalism, it remains the standpoint of the proletariat as Marx understood it, as Lukács perhaps formulated in a bit more detail. It remains the consciousness of the fact that there is a way of reorganizing society um, in a way that, that uh, gears production towards the provision of, of needs, the needs of humanity, and uh, provides really the, the historical window onto uh, a society that's you know, founded on freedom and uh, the the capacities of human beings to uh, sort of cultivate themselves freely. Um, this remains the case even if the proletariat, as presently constituted, is just exploitable material for the valorization of capital. Um, 
I think historically in order for a working class movement to reconstitute itself, it would inevitably uh, involve the uh, creation of some sort of advanced guard, um, a vanguard, perhaps uh, the medium, the political medium of the party. However, unlikely this may seem at present, it remains the only possibility for a more humane society. And um, in terms of the second part of your question, uh, like, would this invariably, would this inevitably be, or let me put it differently. In answering the second part of your question, um, would the uh, would the organization of the class inevitably couch itself uh, in terms of language of outrage or saying like of grievances of saying like wage thefts or like the bosses are stealing from you? Um, I think perhaps at the ideological level, uh, these would remain in some sense spurs of politicization is perhaps um, what gets one interested in uh, joining a larger movement. Again, I don't think that it's, uh, I don't think that it is the foundation of Marxist critique. Um, Marxist critique is not that capitalism is an unjust society or that communism would be a more just society. Really communism as the, the bourgeois uh, legal theorist Hans Kelsen realized, as, especially through his reading of Pashakanis and other uh, Marxist theorists from the Soviet Union, jurists, um, is really a society beyond justice and a society of material abundance. It really isn't a question of who deserves what. One gets what one needs. Um, um, and the grounds for achieving that historically are um, the necessity, the, first of all, the possibility the possibility of passing on to a higher stage of social organization and the necessity of doing this or else to relapse into barbarism, which I believe occurred a hundred years ago. We've been living in it since. Um, basically the, the fact that our the capitalist society offers, um, well, perhaps preferable to past forms of organization, feudal, feudal forms and uh, other pre-capitalist forms of social organization, it no longer offers within itself any possibility for um, any progressive potential uh, for human beings. Um, I think that even, and Engels says this, uh, he, he says as much, um, well, it's not the basis, it might be uh, a sort of weather vane for gauging the, uh, the readiness of the, of the masses to perhaps overthrow capitalism. Yeah, it's not it's not the basis of Marxist critique, which is more an understanding of history and the laws of history as they conceive them. Yeah, I mean, what hearing you say that and I don't disagree with any of it, but what's striking is that you know today there's no sense that revolution is imminent. I mean, even if even if you saw it, you know, it's decades away, in some sense that it will be happening soon. Um, then a lot of what you describe, or a lot of the kind of the the sort of materialist case loses its basis. I mean, so, you know, the, the, the sort of supposedly, you know, anti-ethical, which is perhaps, as you say in the essay, perhaps maybe not the best way to frame it, but this um, stance which doesn't, uh, doesn't concede anything to notions of justice, that that's conceivable and possible if you live life in expectation of a new society. If not, and there's some sort of reconciliation to, to this society, then it's impossible, I guess, to have 
uh, not have recourse to some notion of justice um, to eke out some improvements um, to make life better, fairer, more free uh, in the here and now. And I, I think that's, I'm not, I don't know if this is necessarily a question, more maybe an observation, but, you know, I'm interested in your, uh, what you see, what you, you know, in your response to it, um, which is what, what is most remarkable in all of this is that there's no horizon of revolution and how much then of, of that case that you've put forward collapses or has no real saliency without that horizon of revolution. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the confidence, the optimism of the generation of revolutionary Marxists that lived uh, after Marx, you know, into the, perhaps even into the aftermath of the First World War, where they viewed um, world revolution, proletarian revolution as a certainty, as a veritable certainty that was just just over the horizon, that's certainly been lost. And I think that perhaps some of my um, my interest and sympathy, my interest in and sympathy for the Frankfurt School um, attests to the sort of pessimistic realization that this is not an, inev an inevitability. Um, I think that the, the thing that, that's interesting, uh, I think that that, you know, makes, I think that that gives rise to a kind of desperation on the parts of those people who at least uh, in terms of their self-conception are pro-revolutionary, um, where they, they think, oh, well, the masses aren't just spontaneously organizing themselves against capitalism. Um, how do we get them to do that? And the way that they do this uh, in terms of like leftist publications and uh, organs uh, tends to be uh, moral exhortation, as I've said, like basically saying, like, you know, talking about various injustices around the world, saying like, how can we, how can we tolerate this? How can this, uh, you know, how can people stand to live under such unjust conditions? Um, thinking that, you know, just the sheer outrage or the, uh, indignation on the part of uh, the working class will just somehow spur them to action or organize sure. them. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, and, they, and, and that, that obviously, this for decades. Yeah. And it doesn't work. No, I agree. I, I agree with that. But I guess one answer to that, I mean, if you it's somehow, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to necessarily urge that people <laughs> abandon the possibility of revolution very much on the contrary. But I think the wouldn't the answer then be to try to guarantee or to defend or advance freedom in the here and now in some sense. So maybe not appeal to some notion of justice or fairness um, to make society more equal, fair, whatever, um, but to expand the realm of human freedom in the here and now in the hope that that might then open up further horizons. And you can frame that however you want, whether it's um, kind of labor struggles for higher wages, which guarantee greater freedom or for universal healthcare, um, which might do likewise, or to defend uh, bourgeois democracy to, for example, I mean, with Brexit, for example, to defend, you know, uh, leaving the EU, because that guarantees, uh, or at least provides a basis for a greater democracy, if not necessarily a transcending of the horizon of bourgeois right. Um, so, you know, it, however you want to conceive of these different struggles um, or, you know, defense of civil, liber civil liberties today, however it might be, that these are struggles which don't necessarily point beyond justice, um, but they're not ones that necessarily hinge on justice either, um, and that that would be where politics is to be found today. Um, well, I, I would push back against the idea that there's a possibility for advancing really the Marxist notion of freedom um, and 
the resolution of the, the various antinomies of freedom that history is uh, that history is, is bound up with in bourgeois society uh, within the bounds of bourgeois society. I think really the opening up of and the realization of you know freedom in its most um, rigorous sense and its most uh, robust sense really only occurs uh, through the dictatorship of the proletariat, through the abolition of classes. I don't think that uh, seizing the reins of any bourgeois government and promoting various reforms really, uh, I mean, perhaps it points in the direction of the eventual overcoming of, uh, of these contradictions, but I don't think it's, it's viable in any sense. Um, I think that perhaps one could say that you know there is a, a real freedom that has been introduced by by um, by bourgeois society historically. I mean, this is Marx's entire point. It's one that's riven with contradictions and that uh, is that comes into conflict with itself and you know cannot be resolved except through the self-assertion of the working class. Um, it's something uh, again, it's I'm not. I mean, and perhaps this is, puts me at odds with like the, the sort of base building tendency. I think that one of the, or just the sort of desperation of uh, intellectuals who uh, think of, who are influenced by Marx and who think a better society is possible or think a society based on uh, a more profound uh, Hegelian notion of freedom is possible um, are dismayed by the sort of lack of organization of the working classes. Um, I think. I, I'm not. I don't. I'm not saying that we should go among the masses and just preach this, like you know, doc, Hegelian doctrine of freedom, Hegelian Marxist doctrine of freedom. But I, I think that we, I think that just appealing to their sort of sense of injustice is not an alternative to that. Just saying, trying to 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 mobilize them through by saying like we can't stand this any longer, uh, or no justice, no peace, even any of these sort of like popular. Uh, activist slogans. Um, I don't think that they're really uh, the way, uh, the sort of moralizing rhetoric that really goes across the political spectrum from left to right, you know, wh whether whatever side of any given, you know, issue or policy position is. Um, I think that really the Marxist critique um, poses itself at a, just a higher level than being for or against any number of these sort of uh, policy positions that are, are the, the issues du jour, like, you know, they, um, and while that doesn't mean that we should disengage from, or just, you know, place ourselves at some artificial remove from uh, what's going on in world politics, it does mean that we, that we uh, analyze them uh, from, from a higher uh, viewpoint that we yeah. that we see them I mean, as part of it, a much a much broader historical process than the sort of presentism of uh, the sort of daily outrage factory of the internet or just media bourgeois media. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, I think it's on the one hand obviously important to get beyond the outrage factory and not necessarily have a take or have a stance on every uh, every single issue, but. I guess the, the, the challenge is, on the one hand, not to be drawn into that and not to reinforce or reify presentism, while at the same time, not, uh, I guess, not succumb to a sort of political indif indifferentism. I don't know if you want to... Yeah, I mean, that, that's the challenge. It's the, the, it's the hardest. Uh, I mean, and it's the striking the balance there is 
all the more difficult given the lack of any sort of concrete movement. I think that the ability to, to sort of weigh in on uh, issues of geo, you know, geopolitics or uh, or whatnot uh, is made a lot easier when there is actually like an organized internationalist working class. And the absence of that, and perhaps this might appear to be a quietist mode of orienting oneself towards uh, world politics, uh, I think that one has to just remind oneself of the sort of, of really the the, the higher uh, political possibilities that existed in the past. And the idea is that really these aren't, while they may seem like, you know, far-fetched from the standpoint of the present, they've not been totally eclipsed. Um, the possibilities still exist. There still is, uh, I mean, capitalism cannot exist absent a, a working class that sells its labor, like a capital cannot valorize itself without this exploitable mass. Um, and as long as that mass continues to exist, absent uh, the sort of end of the world or whatever, uh, just total Armageddon, or just the relapse into even pre-capitalist barbarism, th there is still the possibility that uh, the proletarian masses can organize themselves politically and seize power on the global stage transcend the sort of low stakes concerns of uh, bourgeois policymaking or culture war posturing, you know, on either side of the aisle. All right. Very good. Um, I wanted to even ask you some other questions and talk about maybe anti-work and the great resignation, but uh, maybe we'll have to have you on some other time to do that. <laughs> and we'll have to. A Anton's, Anton's probably the better person. To oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that. we're going to have him back on as well. So uh, it, obviously this is part of a more uh, long standing ongoing discussion uh, on BungaCast. But anyway, thanks, Ross, very much. Uh, listeners should check out the essay. It's linked here, um, especially if you're not very familiar with these sorts of debates. It, this provides brilliant uh, yeah, I was going to say brilliant introduction, but it's far more than just an introduction. But uh, definitely worth uh, definitely worth checking out. So well, thanks anyway. so much for for giving me the opportunity to talk about it again. I mean, I'm not sure if it'll you know receive that much of a, a, a wider readership, but it is it is fairly uh, esoteric in some of its references and whatnot. But I, I'm I'm so glad to have been able to talk about it and uh, as fans of your work uh, and you know, the, the various guests you've had on. Uh, it's been great. So thank you so much. Uh, cheers, Thanks Ross. Thanks very much, Ross.